Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, and thank you for turning in to the ALR PRA Incorporated weekly radio show. We are the law practice management experts headquartered in DuPage County, Illinois. ALR PRA is a company run by lawyers for lawyers who want the tips, tools, and services to help them spend more time practicing law and less spend, time less, spend less time worrying about running the law firm. We specialize in providing in-house and subcontracted law practice management services through our two main divisions, pleading drafter and law publicist. Our operations serve the greater metropolitan regions in and around DuPage County, Illinois, Fairfax County, Virginia, Orange County, California, and Westchester County, New York. Our pleading drafter division focuses on court call coverage, contract, and permanent attorney and staff placement. Our additional pleading drafter services include turnkey paper-free file scanning and all the other collateral functions of law firm productions and work product. Our law publicist division focuses on law firm marketing, branding, and image consulting. Public relations for law firms is a growing need for ALRPRA, and has ALRPRA has expert subcontractors ready to offer superior answers to law firm marketing, branding, and public relations questions. The Law Publicist on Point is our monthly publication featuring a variety of articles and resources to help law firms maximize their law practice management systems and grow their law firms. Our circulation to thousands of firms offers innovative opportunities for legal professionals to share information and create strategic reciprocal referral arrangements. Our guest today is Illinois intellectual property attorney Nancy Ducharme. Nancy Ducharme has been practicing law since 1987, concentrating in trademark, copyright, advertising, and related areas. She is a graduate of St. Mary's College of Notre Dame, Indiana, and holds an MBA in marketing from the University of Notre Dame. Before entering law school, Nancy worked in a variety of marketing positions. Nancy earned her law degree from the DePaul College of Law in Chicago. After graduating from DePaul, Nancy spent two years as a clerk for the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Following her judicial clerkship, Nancy entered the private practice of law, joining Sidley and Austin in Chicago, where she worked as an intellectual property attorney for more than a decade. She opened her own law office in 2001. Nancy has worked with a diverse group of clients representing small businesses as well as large corporations. How are you doing today, Nancy? Fine, thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, we are respectful of your time and uh, callers and uh, listeners, so we will limit our conference call to one hour. Our questions that are not answered on the call will, can be addressed personally at a later time frame. Uh, we'll open the show up to callers at about the halfway point. The telephone number to call in is area code 917-889-9732. Again, that telephone number was area code 917 917- Eight eight nine nine seven three two. When you call in, press one to be prompted and queued to be uh, a guest and ask your question of uh, Attorney Nancy Ducharme. Um, getting going, what we will do in the format of our show is sort of a question and answer. 
Uh, today, the topic, again, is intellectual property, and we're going to be discussing some information that may be useful to attorneys who have entrepreneurial or business clients and also for small business owners um, discussing some things they might want to consider in managing their company and learning more about intellectual property matters. Um, our first question for attorney Nancy Ducharme uh, is basically, what are some key issues to spot when you're an attorney who has a client with a business or you're a small business owner? What are some key issues? Uh, well, it's key to for a company to protect its intellectual property matters. Uh, not every entrepreneur, small business owner is going to hold a patent, for example, but all of them are going to be involved in some degree with copyright issues. If you have a website, for example, that's copyrightable subject matter, any photos, brochure text that are used for advertising, those are also copyrightable subject matters. And unless you're dry cleaning the sign that hangs out uh, on your establishment, uh, which is a generic term for what you do, virtually every business out there is interested in branding, which gets us into the realm of trademarks. So it's important for attorneys to understand this when servicing their client needs, and of course it's very important for uh, entrepreneurs who are starting up businesses or those who are running uh, growing businesses to understand the implications of intellectual property. Now, why... Can you talk a little bit more about why intellectual property is an important topic? Uh, what are some of the important things when they're doing work on branding? What should they be looking for? Why is it important to think about? Well, a, a business reputation, for example, which is a trademark, can be a plus or minus. So if you were taking over an established business that had a very poor reputation, one of the first uh, activities of the day would be to put out a sign and let the world know that it's under new management. Perhaps there would be a name change. Uh, to flag the change. On the other hand, if you were purchasing uh, or you're selling an established business that has a very good reputation uh, and has had repeat customers and business, that is goodwill, which is actually a, a, a corporate asset which would be identified in the balance sheet uh, and is valuable. So when you're valuing your business and, and uh, again, for appraisal purposes, for selling it, uh, you're going to command a premium above and beyond the physical assets or the brick-and-mortar assets of a property that you have. You're going to be able to command a premium because the reputation of the business and the repeat customers are going to lead to uh, additional sales. And uh, so that's where you get into the trademark realm. But all of these assets, uh, be it a, a patent, a copyright, a trademark, uh, have a value, you can borrow money against them, and again, they're going to be listed as, as uh, business assets for the business. So although these are intangibles, that's why we call them intellectual property, uh, they are not at all insignificant. They are very, very important to business. So it sounds like it's a little bit more than just uh, identifying the company. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It really establishes who they are and separates you from the pack. When you talk a little bit, can you talk a little bit more about branding for those who may not be familiar with the concept? Well, establishing a trademark, and a trademark is anything that functions as a source identifier to the public. Uh, you may not know who the company is, you may not know anything about them, but even a toddler uh, in the backseat of a car knows what those golden arches mean when they see them on the road. They, they know that there's a happy meal around the corner, and uh, so they know nothing about corporate America or McDonald's Corporation or how they differ from Burger King or who has the better market share, but they do understand that source identification. 
so a, a name of the business, a logo, um, you know, even the sound, the NBC chimes, for example, will function as a trademark uh, to the world. And it's important when establishing a brand uh, to think about the best branding and imagery you can get to have something strong that can be protected, and then to take appropriate steps to, uh, to protect it, which we can talk about later. Um, but selecting the mark will often entail doing uh, appropriate searching to make sure that you're not stepping on someone else's toes or someone else's existing rights and, and sort of buying yourself into a lawsuit. Now, Nancy, what would you want to do when you've determined your brand is X, your company does Y, you want to display that to the world using a certain slogan or logo, um, you now want to obtain a trademark. How do you go about obtaining a trademark? What are the steps and procedures? Well, your question is, is interesting, too, because it identifies a number of different things that can function as trademarks. A slogan, for example, and we're probably all familiar with the Nike slogan, Just Do It. Um, then there's the Nike swoosh symbol, so a symbol uh, can be a trademark. And, of course, there's the word mark, and maybe the way the word mark appears in a stylized manner. And I generally will uh, mention the Coca-Cola Gothic style of lettering that is uh, well known to people. Uh, so all of those things, and including in Coca-Cola's case, the bottle shape can function as a trademark. But when adopting a trademark, the first thing, as I mentioned earlier, is to determine whether you have first rights, because this is not a race to the Patent and Trademark Office to register the trademark, it's really a race to the marketplace. Uh, there is one exception to the rule where an intent to use trademark can uh, give you rights you know, prior to your using it. Um, those rights are only perfected once you have registered uh, the mark and had, in fact, be begun using it. But for the most part, uh, the, the general rule is the first to the market is going to be the owner of a particular mark. So even if you have not registered a mark, uh, you will enjoy common law marks rights in that mark wherever you are the first user. You may be geographically limited. So let, let us say, for example, in the Midwest, you have sales and, and you're well-known and you have a reputation in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, uh, in various uh, Midwestern states. Um, and perhaps you're completely not known in the, on the Pacific Coast. Uh, so out in California, someone who has never heard of you innocently adopts the same trademark in the same industry, there's nothing you can do about that. You cannot sue them for infringement because the two of you are not in the same geographic area. Now, in today's global economy with the Internet, maybe that scenario is a little far-fetched and, and does not occur very often, but there are still businesses that do have a, a primary presence and, and sort of could be geographically limited. So you may want to think about uh, obtaining greater rights, uh, which would be possible through a federal registration, uh, which can give you rights to the whole country that extend beyond where the normal common law protection is. But I think it's very important when doing this searching, you know, um, which is a predicate, again, you don't want to be buying yourself a lawsuit, you need to be mindful as to whether there's a competitor or someone in a related field who's using either this mark or something substantially similar to it. The test of trademark infringement is likelihood of confusion. Uh, so the sophistication of the audience, buyer is important, uh, how closely related are the goods and services to each other. Um, 
And in fact, if there are any cases of actual confusion, these are factors that courts will take into account. Uh, so in doing a, an appropriate search, an IP professional will see how close are your proposed mark to existing marks out there and to see if coexistence is a possibility or if in fact you're, you're going to run into an uphill battle. Nancy, uh, you, you uh, a question pops up in my mind because again, uh, one of the reasons that this is relevant to law practice management and our idea uh, for having you as a helpful guest today is to let our general attorney public know as well as uh, business owners out there um, to let them know that IP professionals are there for other attorneys to call upon for advice and, and uh, help. Um, when you talk about doing the trademark searches, can you uh, speak a little bit more about how an IP attorney uh, can specifically help with, with those trademark searches? Well, generally, uh, the way I do it at least is I do a preliminary search, sort of test the waters and see what data I can find in the existing registries, the, the federal or possibly the state registries, uh, and through various internet searches to see if I can ferret out any existing blocks uh, that would suggest that uh, perhaps the client needs to go back to the drawing board and, and pick another mark. Um, it, this is for word marks. Design marks are a little more complicated, so we'll, we'll put that discussion aside for the moment. But the, uh, if it looks bad, again, the client may want to revisit uh, that particular word or, or change it up or come back to something else. But if it looks clear, uh, then the next logical step is to order full trademark search, which are usually done by professional professional search companies. Um, these searches can be expensive, but they're well worth the money. Uh, they will include data that the search professionals at those companies have selected from their various database resources. And the common law resources will include uh, trade journals, uh, a lot of uh, directories, publications that are not readily accessible uh, by most attorneys, including IP attorneys. And again, this data is important because if there is a non-registered mark, but it's out there and it's in the common law, there are common law rights attached to it, uh, you certainly don't want to be adopting a mark that is going to be stepping on someone else's rights because, once again, you, you could be facing, a, a, at a minimum, a cease and desist letter uh, or eventually uh, a trademark infringement lawsuit. I have a general question about... Mar about the marketing department, um, I always think that when when, when trying to determine a good brand or what you want your trademark slogan to be, what what happens if you've already been using um, a certain trademark or slogan and then you hire an attorney or you do a search and you find that there's a potential issue? Are you stopped that in your tracks? What are your options? Well, at that point, uh, you know, it's, it, everything's a risk-benefit uh, analysis. Um, when that's happened, if you've already been out there for a number of years using your trademark, there is always the possibility that, uh, you know, you've, you've got some sort of cloud above you. You don't really know what's behind that cloud, sunshine or, you know, a big storm brewing. It could be that there could come the day when you will be receiving that cease and desist letter. I've had that happen to clients who've been in business for quite a while, and, at some point in time, they surface in someone's radar screen, and they're the recipient then of a cease and desist letter. Um, but perhaps they're lucky, and perhaps it's sunshine, and, and no one else has adopted that mark. At this point, again, the client has enjoyed common law protection, and uh, you know, 
they can uh, they try to expand their rights and seek federal registration at that point. So and again, with federal registration, they have more different rights than they do under common law. The, the benefit there are a number of benefits to obtaining a federal registration. One, of course, is you get to use the Circle R, uh, which is a designation that is federally registered. Uh, you'll have the Patent and Trademark Office examining attorney who's reviewing pending applications from others. Uh, utilizing your mark as a potential block. So they're doing a little bit of policing effort for you. So that's a key benefit. Um, another one, and I think this is the chief benefit, is you're going to get the entire country. So even if you're going back to my hypothetical example where the rights, uh, common law rights were limited to the Midwest, you are now going to have rights that extend throughout the entire country, which is a huge benefit. And, and lastly, and, and, and not uh, insignificantly, in the event of litigation, uh, your mark is considered a prima facie valid mark because it's been conferred by the government. Uh, and once you've been registered for a period of time, there's certain defenses that will go off the table. Okay. Um, you know, Nancy, you mentioned um, you mentioned the policing, uh, policing of trademarks. Once you do have a selected trademark, what are the right things to do to protect it? Well, it's certainly important uh, to police your mark, use it properly. Uh, a trademark is appropriately uh, viewed as a proper adjective. It should not be used by yourself or anyone else as a noun or a verb. That's a good way of genericizing your mark and, and losing rights in it. An escalator aspirin, for example, used to be someone's trademarks way back when, and they were misused and over time became the generic equivalent for uh, the drug or the electrical staircase uh, that was moving, and uh, the trademark owners lost their rights. So a trademark owner does not want that to happen, so you'll police your own use. You'll always use it in uh, distinctive lettering or all caps. And if you find a competitor or some third party, it could be an innocent uh, use, is in fact encroaching on your rights, as with any other trespass, you will have to uh, take appropriate steps sometimes sending a strongly worded letter, I uh, can remind people that uh, this is inappropriate and where you need to, file litigation and enforce your rights. I always uh, sort of compare it to my clients as, as a, uh, your, you know, your property. You're not going to allow poachers to set up tents in, in your yard or in your business uh, parking lot, uh, and you should not allow people to be encroaching on your other assets, including your trademark. Uh, one thing that's important, if you're a licensor, uh, licensing um, involves uh, intellectual property and, and uh, allowing others to use it by virtue of a contract, and a license is a fancy name for an intellectual property contract. If you are a licensor of a trademark uh, and you are allowing third parties to use it by virtue of this contract, you have to be careful because uh, a trademark license that has too much enforcement can look like a franchise. And franchising is a beautiful uh, concept and a way of cloning your business and your success model uh, and allowing others to, uh, to, to utilize the same plans. Um, but, so why am I flagging this as a danger area? It's because it's a highly regulated area of the law and very specialized. Uh, so before you offer a franchise in Illinois, for example, you had to first have registered to do that with the Attorney General and filed your appropriate uh, franchising documents. So, uh, you know, if you ever get into the licensing area, again, a, a professional in the field is an essential uh, 
part of your team to be working with you on that. Nancy, I have a, a question about your, your mention of using the trademark as an adjective and being, being aware of if you license use to someone else of your trademark that they're using it appropriately. What's the distinction by it being used as an adjective or a noun? Why is that important again? Uh, again, if you are misusing it uh, or someone else is, you could possibly lose rights in it. So uh, I'll, I'll take the trademark uh, rollerblade. Uh, the appropriate uh, phrase would be, let's go inline skating this week with our rollerblade brand of inline skates. It would not be to use the registered mark rollerblade as a verb or as a noun to describe the either the skates themselves or the activity that's involved in utilizing those skates. Uh, so there, it's an important consideration. My next question, Nancy, we talked a lot about trademarks, but you mentioned copyright as, as another intellectual property item. Can you uh, tell us a little bit more about what a copyright is as opposed to a trademark and how do you go about uh, obtaining a copyright? Well, a copyright is a uh, federal right. There's no common law copyright. There's no state of Illinois copyright. It's exclusively under federal law. Um, and to obtain a copyright today is, is fairly simple and, and easy, and I can explain that process. Uh, a copyright is conferred upon creative works uh, artwork, and the law is not at all discriminatory, so it, it can have the uh, paint-by-numbers type of paintings or, you know, that uh, you have created for someone or, you know, um, folk art uh, as much as it could a, uh, a masterpiece. Uh, you know, a, a copyright artwork is artwork. It, it doesn't matter. So it will attach to such creative expressions as um, uh, sculpture, music, and it could be the lyrics, the uh, tune. It would also be the performance of a singer or a band in performing the music. All those are copyrightable works. Choreography that's fixed, uh, so a, a particular intricate ballet or a dance number that is in a Broadway musical, for example, that's all uh, laid out in a scheme that would be copyrightable. Buildings are protected as well as the blueprints. Um, and the overlap with trademark is that there could be some things that are both functioning as a source designator, a trademark, and they're copyrightable. And, and think, for example, of the Pillsbury Doughboy. Uh, the little character is a drawing, a cartoon. He's protected under copyright, and he also serves as a brand for the company to identify their products. Uh, so that's an example of how there can be some overlap. How do you obtain a copyright? Uh, you need to just fix your creative expression in a tangible form. So, uh, you know, nothing magical is required. No government officials need to be consulted. It exists. So if I'm at my word processing, my computer system, and I'm typing into my word processing program uh, my great masterpiece of poetry or a play that I've written or a novel, uh, the minute I save it to my hard drive, I own a copyright, even in my rough draft. Or if I am painting at an easel with a canvas, uh, I put my paintbrush down, I have, again, fixed my creativity in a tangible form, and at that moment, my uh, copyright exists. So um, 
the the old mailing yourself or the poor man's copyright. That's uh, is that just an old wise tale? So to I honestly never understood the the utility of doing that, and particularly because the fees are fairly low. It's you know fifty dollars or less to to register most works with the U.S. Copyright Office. It can be done online. Uh, this is one of those things I don't think you need to consult uh, a lawyer to do. The folks at the Copyright Office have always been friendly, in my experience. So I encourage people, instead of doing the poor man's copyright, get the real deal. There's some key benefits that come from registration. Again, it's not required that you federally register your work unless you're suing. If you have not uh, filed, uh, you will be required to file if you are filing an infringement lawsuit. So it is a prerequisite for that. And the key reason to, uh, to get the registration is in the event of infringement, you can collect from the infringer, if you prevail, attorney's fees and statutory damages, which can be quite significant. If you had not registered your work and your work was infringed, you'll be collecting actual damages. If you're a starving artist, maybe the value of your work is not that great. So those statutory benefits well worth that $50. You get a lot of mileage out of that money. And again, I strongly encourage people to take the appropriate steps and to protect their work by registration. Nancy, I have a question about the work that you would create. Um, let's say you're doing, or let's say your product is a, a book and you have done, you've authored the book and you have a friend or someone you know who's an art student who designs the cover. Um, so in, in that case, when, when someone else has contributed to your, your, your product or what you're selling or your work, what are some things to think about there? Well, that gets into uh, issues of who owns what. Um, you know, if uh, two people are, uh, there was a um, television, or excuse me, a movie a few years ago called uh, Words and Lyrics, uh, and it showed collaboration. Um, it was a romantic comedy. It was a good movie, but uh, showed collaboration on creating music. You know, one person come up with the tune, somebody else come up with the lyrics. In that event, you'd both be co-authors of the entire song, uh, and co-authors are considered tenants in common, and each has the ability to exploit the work and would owe a uh, royalty or an accounting to the other and how they were licensing the work out. But in your scenario where I was the novelist, I created the work, and I asked the artist to contribute the illustrations or the cover art. Uh, that's a separate piece of it. Now, the ultimate book, is, its presentation, if I want to uh, claim a copyright in the entirety, I'm going to have to obtain appropriate uh, rights from the artist. And this is a really key piece of advice for any small business owner or for any attorney who deals with small businesses. Any time a non-employee of your company, of your business, is doing any type of creative output, that could be writing, it could be taking photographs, it could be a web design, uh, the law assumes that the non-employee, the independent contractor, owns the copyright in that work. And by the way, I should have prefaced this uh, in the beginning, uh, Nick, my discussion of all these issues is based on U.S. law only, and um, I'm giving general advice, so certainly in any particular circumstance, I encourage you to consult with legal counsel. So there's my disclaimer that, you know, the law may be different as applied to you, and the only way to know that is to contact the appropriate 
attorney for your situation. But in terms of general law, again, if, if there is an independent contractor, and, and that could be in dispute as to whether someone's an employee or not, but if they're an outsider, they don't work for you, the law will assume that they own the rights. So in order for you to have the rights, you need to have an assignment in writing uh, of the copyright in that output assigned over to you. So in your situation, the illustrator artist who did the cover art or any illustrations in the, in the novel will assign the copyright over to me. I give them the money. They give me the, the assignment document. I then can file for the registration of the copyright and can identify on the registration form that I obtained the illustration ownership uh, by assignment. Um, Nancy, you mentioned money. With an assignment, is, there necess is it necessary that the uh, assignment deal is supported by consideration under normal contract terms? Yeah, it is going to be viewed as a contract. So, uh, you know, it's got to be supported as any other contract principle. And in the absence, by the way, you know, I've had this happen where people say, well, look, I had uh, hired the photographer, uh, but they provided me with the copy. They knew what I was going to do with it, and I paid them. But absent that writing about not assignment, what you have is a right to use it, a license. And if life is good between you, your relations are fine, it should not be an issue. But the problem always, of course, is when relations break down and people are not happy with each other and then there's a claim. And, and by way of a real example, assume that a company has hired uh, an outside firm to prepare its website. And uh, again, that's copyrightable. The web designer has done all the work. Uh, you compensated them. You now have a right to use that design on your website. And now a year down the road, you want the right to change it up. You don't want to hire them. You, they were kind of expensive. Maybe your nephew has just graduated with a, a degree in, in computers background and in, in web design, and, and you'd like to give the work to them. Technically, you can't. Uh, because the copyright holder has uh, several exclusive rights under the U.S. law, and one of them is the right to create a derivative work. A derivative work would be a work based on the original. So imagine my novel written in English. The Spanish translation of that would be a derivative work. Or the next James Bond film in the series of James Bond films would be a derivative of the original. Uh, so for the web design, doing a 2.0 version of the website would in fact be a derivative work of the original, only the copyright holder has the right to authorize a uh, derivative work to be made. So you'd have to technically go and ask permission of the original web designer. If you don't do that, you could be sued for infringement. Let me just uh, interject also that now would be a good time. if uh, We're going to continue on uh, with some questions and answers here. Callers, if you have any questions of attorney Nancy Ducharme, please feel free to call us. Again, the telephone number is area code 917-889-9732. And when you're prompt, press 1. Again, that number is area code 917-889-9732. We're here in Chicago, and again, we want to remind our listeners who uh, may be attorneys or business owners in uh, other states across the country, uh, again, that Nancy Ducharme is an Illinois-licensed attorney practicing intellectual property law and uh, she, again, recommends that you should always contact someone in your own jurisdiction if you have any questions about state matters. Of course, uh, many of these are federal matters as well. Um, so, again, if you want to call, uh, the telephone number 917-889-9732. 
Um, you know, Nancy, we're we're not. Do you know where that area code is? I never, I never asked. I don't know. We'll have to figure that one out. <laughs> Oftentimes they're East Coast numbers, but uh, we are here in Illinois. But it's a nine one seven area code. So uh, to the extent you want to call, please feel free. Um, moving on to uh, some some follow up questions. Um, some people, and I've had contacts with some people who have you know had business models or business plans um, or ideas on how to accomplish a goal or, you know, it's in the formulation stage or businesses, um, you know, how, how protectable is that? Do you have a copyright in, in an idea for uh, something or a business plan? Can you talk a little about that? Well, to the extent the business plan is in written form, uh, obviously that's text and, and any kind of writing like that, uh, your words as you've expressed them are going to be protected under copyright. However, the underlying ideas are not protectable. Uh, that is a real misconception uh, as to what copyright protects and what it does not. Um, if the essential question is how can I protect the idea, the only way to protect an idea is by having a contract, a confidentiality agreement entered into between the parties. Um, so the worst case scenario would be to take your wonderful business idea and to put it up on your website, and then you've given the idea to everyone. And, and by way of analogy, uh, think about a book. If I write a how-to book on how to do something, um, maybe I've got some innovative ideas, some techniques for success, some, some roadmaps and, and great marketing concepts for businesses to implement. Um, certainly my layout of those ideas, my expression, my chapters are all protected under copyright. So if someone were to come along and, and make photocopies of them or lift passages, uh, change a word up, here or there, and then you know, republish it, they've infringed my work. If, however, someone reads my book and actually implements my concepts and plans, that's why I gave it to them. There's nothing I can complain about. You know, I, I have a cookbook, I've got a recipe, and, and at least the expression of how I've laid that out and the directions, turn stove on, you know, mix this together, pour into pan. Someone might be able to put it in different wording. Uh, but and they go ahead and make the cake that I put in my book I can't complain about it. That's why I gave it to them. So there's a limit on uh, copyright in the extent that it does not protect the underlying idea. Um, just the expression, the tangible expression of that creativity. Uh, here's a kind of a question um, from left field. What if, yeah, I just thought of this, what if someone is recording you and you're dictating the, you know, the, the recipe? And, um, it, you know, in a sense, it's then, well, I mean, I suppose you haven't put it in a fixed uh, expression. How would that work? Well, if I've authorized someone to do it, it's equally protected. So there you go with a, say, band, garage band example where people would often try to do the poor man's copyright and mail tapes back to themselves or, you know, MP3 files, you know, send them back to one one other, put them on a disc. Um, if you if authorize someone to, to record it for you, then that solves the uh the tangible expression idea. Again, it has to be fixed in some kind of form, saved in a hard drive, written on paper, saved on tape, whatever. And uh, if I'm extemporaneously speaking and did not authorize someone to make a copy, then that's sort of gone with the wind. But uh, anyway. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were talking about websites. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, website presence. What are some things that are important to know about intellectual property and the Internet? Well, uh, I think there are a few aspects. For copyright, which is a subject we've just been talking about, um, just because something's out there on the Internet, 
photographs are on there, music is on there, uh, you like the way that something is laid out, it's not free for you to take it. Um, even if the photograph does not have a copyright notice or an attribution, you don't know who is the owner. The fact that it may be missing the notice is not fatal to the copyright uh, under the current law. In the old days, you know, 1909 statute or whatever, it would be fatal. Not today. Uh, the fact that a work is missing a copyright notice does not mean that it's any less copyrighted. It is still protected. The fact that it doesn't have uh, the owner named is not fatal. Uh, so you should presume that anything out there is owned by someone. You may not know who it is. So uh, freely taking uh, someone else's property uh, is no different than going in, you know, people's businesses and, and you know, helping yourself to products and putting them in your pocket and walking out of them. It is cer certainly an act of infringement and to be avoided. Uh, in terms of uh, other aspects of the Internet, the Internet is, has uh, presented some interesting IP challenges and uh, the law has certainly dealt with these and, and uh, it's evolved over time. But if we can touch on domain names, for example, um, domain names can get involved in, in trademark issues. Uh, and it leads to some interesting questions. You know, who has the right to Apple.com? Would it be the Beatles record company, Apple? Would it be uh, the travel company, Apple Vacations? Would it be uh, a fruit seller uh, having Apple.com or the uh, computer company? Um, you know, they all have a viable claim to it, uh, either a trademark claim or for the fruit vendor or generic use of the term. Uh, so it's led to some interesting uh, court decisions and some decisions along the way, and uh, uh, many of them have been sorted out. But you, you need to be careful when you're picking a domain name that uh, you need to have in the back of your head that there could be a trademark issue. Uh, I think it's really similar, though, in, in corporate attorneys who are used to uh, advising their clients on trade name um, and corporate name adoption. I have a similar issue. You just can't pick a name because you like it, even if it's your surname. If my name were Nancy McDonald and I call myself McDonald Corporation, you know that I'm going to have a problem because uh, my surname is just like a very famous uh, trademark. Uh, so that the, the domain name selection can get into a problem. And the last point I, I think it's important to know, uh, in the registration of the domain name, it's very important that entrepreneurs and small businesses hold ownership of that domain name and do not relinquish it to anyone else. Um, I know of situations where the web design company had registered the domain name, they were identified as the owner, and later when there was a dispute with the company that was utilizing that site for its core business and, and having e-commerce sales on that site, they were actually locked out of their own website. So that's a scenario you don't want to have happen. So always make sure that you have ownership rights to the domain name. Okay. Um, actually, you know, we, have a, we don't have a caller right now, but we just did uh, get an email question. And uh, it's, it's, I guess the timing uh, is you know, quick, of course. Um, this must have triggered someone when you started talking about Internet. The question um, is regarding cyber squatting, and the question reads, what, what should I know about cyber squatting, and how is it applicable to social media? So again, I'm not really sure uh, specifically um, what they're asking about with social media, but 
Um, in terms of cyber squatting and I guess how that would apply to social media and other websites and domains, um, what, what can you say about cyber squatting? Well, cyber squatting, uh, there is actually a federal law that deals with uh, cyber squatting. Uh, it's not something you want to be accused of, of doing. Um, if, again, you're sort of uh, trailing on somebody else's branding, um, you know, the owner of the brand may raise an objection. Um, so, it, you know, it could be social media part of it. I, I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting twist on things. I, I need to know more details. Um, I'm not sure, for example, if someone, and I'm going to completely make up this example, someone called themselves Brillo Man or whatever, that that was like a, a fun <laughs> nickname. Maybe they, their friends call them that for whatever reason. My friends call me Brillo Man. <laughs> okay. <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, if that were, if that were the, you know, someone's trademark, uh, you know, there's obviously a trademark for that product, uh, I don't know how the Brillo folks would react to someone, you know, using it in social media. Like it's a, if it's their nickname, for example. It's their nickname. And and, so you, you know, know right. I mean, obviously, if they're out there in the world, you know, I don't think the Brillo people are going to object to them being known by that socially. Now you start to get on the Internet. Now you start to make some use of it. Now, you know, what are you doing with it? Are you selling things? Is it just a, an innocent use? Uh, there, uh, There is an aspect of fair use. It's, it's a concept that really applies under under copyright that people may be familiar with, uh, but there's a fair use aspect to trademark as well. Um, but the the cyber squatting, you know, taking someone else's trademark and you know putting a, a .com or .biz or when the new GTL, GL, GTLDs are released. Uh, well, what's a GTL? What? Uh, that's going to that's a, like the top level domain name, like a .com. There's a whole series of them that in the near future are going to be released. Uh, I, I'm not sure what the timing is on it right now, but uh, anyway, uh, utilizing someone else's uh, brand and getting into that area can be an expensive endeavor if you are on the wrong side of the lawsuit. So uh, again, I certainly think you should consult with an attorney uh, to discuss the particulars of your case. Okay. Um, thank you uh, for the email question, by the way. Um, that is absolutely fine for callers to email their questions and in our emails available on our website, ALRPRA.com. Um, I have another uh, question here, and I, I apologize if you already answered this, but the question I wrote down uh, was, does trademark have the same rules uh, regarding the Internet as copyright does? Because we were talking about copyright. Really, yes. Trademark uh, trademark law is, is really a consumer protection law. We don't want people to be misdirected or miscued in the grocery stores uh, putting the wrong product in their uh, shopping carts. We don't want them misdirected in the world that they navigate through direct mail or for anything else. So the Internet is another medium for advertising, is another potential avenue for uh, someone to do a little bit of sleight of hand and uh, redirect the consumer's attention from where they wanted to go to where they are now going. So. Any type of, uh, and this is where cyber squatting tends to be a problem, Any even typo squatting where people have used a zero instead of an, uh, the letter O, or they've used um, a common misspelling of a famous mark, uh, knowing that maybe someone will put in an extra L or that people will put in an I instead of an E or whatever. Uh, those have been an equal problem because, again, trademark law protects the consumer 
Uh, there's certainly a property component to the trademark owner, but it's essentially designed, the laws are designed to make sure that people are not duped in the marketplace. Uh, so to the extent that uh, misdirection is occurring in the Internet, it is still an infringement and it's still a problem. And, and most uh, trademark owners will take appropriate steps to protect, uh, to protect their turf. And I think that's totally understandable and balanced. And I don't want to come out too much in the side of uh, pro-owner because uh, there have been instances where some um, businesses have gone too far and, and sort of been bullies in protecting uh, rights where there absolutely was no confusion. Um, and, and I think that's wrong. But on the other hand, most business owners, however small or large they are, do recognize all the investments that they have put into building up their brand and reputation and having someone poach on it is very, very uh, costly. Um, and so, you know, whether you are a small business or a large uh, enterprise, protecting your brand, you know, again, it's a very valuable asset. and It's what you're known by and what your products are known by. And uh, you do need to take steps to protect it. Nancy, I have a couple questions about one of your other practice areas. But first, I want to thank you for your helpful comments on copyright and trademark. And... I know as I try to keep up with you, my head's swimming a little bit. Um, it, it appears that there are all sorts of nuances there uh, in where your years of experience um, in practicing an intellectual property could be useful to not only business owners but uh, attorneys out there who, for, for whatever reason, may have a business uh, client or maybe that there's a business client issue that comes up within the scope of um, some other type of representation. So um, I hope that... Uh, those practitioners out there listening will be inclined to uh, call and ask uh, questions. So it sounds like uh, most of the intellect. I suppose would this be true that most IP attorneys are are uh, there to you know sort of help educate uh, some of the other attorneys out there. I mean, it seems like a good thing that everybody is enough up to speed that they know at least the issue spot. Oh, I think it's an absolutely uh, symbiotic relationship between IP attorneys and. Uh, most business attorneys. Now, there's some business attorneys who put on their IP hat every now and then, and, and they're well-versed in the field, but uh, there are a lot of intricacies in this area of law, and uh, for most of us that work with business folks and business attorneys, um, you know, it's good for them to be educated on on some of these issues and for to know when to call us and so we can step in and, and uh, address the appropriate issues. So maybe they do the issue spotting and, and we we serve the need, and, and uh, you know, it, it's not up to, you know, all attorneys to understand, you know, what the latest missive was from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. You know, that's my job. Uh, so, uh, you know, we can work together and, and uh, serve our client needs, and I think it's a it's a win-win all the way around. It does sound like a like a nice alignment there. So that's a great opportunity. Um, I have just a couple qual uh, questions. I noticed that your practice. Um, also includes advertising. We have a little time left here, so if I may, uh, what are some advertising considerations that uh, one should be aware of? Um, well, first of all, I want I worked in marketing for several years. I have an MBA with a specialty in marketing, uh, and again, I worked in the field before I went to law school. So my first experience at my prior uh, law firm uh, was doing marketing law, that was the umbrella term that was given to our practice area, which I thought was a very apt expression for what we did. Uh, and in doing advertising copy review, uh, and advertising today can be on the Internet, it could be on packaging, it could be on you know, direct mail, 
uh, commercials, radio spots, billboards, whatever, uh, there are a couple of key things that people need to be concerned about. Obviously, uh, stepping in someone else's trademark, you know, the copyright aspects, but uh, anytime you have a uh, non-puffing statement, and puffing is defined as sort of, you know, fluff and stuff, comments and statements, you know, we're the best, or, you know, you'll like us, or whatever, uh, comments that no one in their right mind uh, necessarily believes, not that they don't believe it's true, but if it were false, it, it's of no moment. Everyone understands that the advertiser is trying to put its best foot forward and is uh, promoting itself, and that's all it, it stands for. But anytime you have scientific tests or comparative uh, statements to other products, you know, we're uh, better than the leading brand in this way, our product lasts two times longer, in a survey of uh, preference, more people preferred ours than the competitors in a taste test. What You need to have documented proof to back up those claims before your ad runs. If you don't have this prior substantiation, you could be receiving some uh, complaints from your competitors. Uh, you could be receiving a complaint from the attorney general in your state or wherever the ad is running. Uh, or the FTC and or the FTC, uh, the Federal Trade Commission requires that. And there's some good guidelines on the FTC website, which is ftc.gov, uh, on advertising. And there's some specific business areas. If you're in the funeral home business, for example, there's some guidelines just dealing with that industry. So that's a good source of information for advertisers to make sure that they are in compliance uh, with the various requirements. But one of the, again, one of the key areas is that there be substantiation for any type of claim that the viewer would take uh, to require su su such substantiation. Um, Nancy, can you talk a little bit about uh, advertising to different, different markets, uh, whether you're advertising, let's say uh, you're advertising to, I don't know, children or... Uh, that's another area. If you are ch uh, advertising to children, um, there's some special guidelines. The Better Business Bureau, for example, has uh, a unit called the Children's Advertising Review Unit. Uh, this is a self-policing body. Uh, they also have uh, some guidelines in advertising. But children are a vulnerable population, and as soon as children learn to watch television or are exposed to advertising, they may not understand that the little toy plane doesn't really fly itself. It, uh, that, uh, if uh, you have Fred Flintstone uh, promoting Flintstone vitamins on the show uh, and, and you're running that same ad within the Flintstones airing of the cartoon, they may see it as part of the plot. You know, they don't see it as a differentiation. So there's a, there are a number of rules, special rules that deal with advertising to children. There's, by the way, special rules in the Internet. If your Internet site is geared toward children, certain privacy policies that have to be adhered to. Um, so those have to be taken into account. And, and in fact, advertising can be an incredibly complex area. Um, you may have to put disclaimers on um, free offers that you're, you're giving out. If you're running a two-for-one promotion, it can't be forever. It has to be for a limited time. Uh, so once again, there's a, a number of rules, and it's important to consult with the appropriate professional and, and, and team with them, or make sure your advertising agency is working with uh, legal counsel on these matters. Nancy, it sounds like I really hit the nail on the head with the comments about the children. reason that I bring that up, I did uh, voiceover work for my father's radio station when I was a kid, and I know that they always uh, used to read us some 
you know, information, or I, I was exposed at least to, you know, knowing that as a child there were for certain rules. So um, it just popped up in my head. So um, very interesting uh, specific advertising. Any other, any other uh, potential traps or things that we should look out for or any other resources that, um, that business might want to take a look at when they're doing, um, you know, they're writing their ad copy or this and, um, you know, they're maybe not, you know, at the point where they need to or they've elected not to consult an attorney or maybe they have in the past. Um, let's just say, for hypothetical sake, they're flying on their own. Uh, what should they, any other resources or thoughts? Well, again, I would point for the advertising back to the FTC.gov. The Better Business Bureau has some information. They certainly have information, and they've got programs for privacy statements. Uh, if you comply and you're a member, you know, you can get certifications on uh, this again applies to internet sites where you're you're collecting content and information on your customers. Um, I'd like to give you a couple of other websites, though. The government resources for some of the other topics we talked about. The uh, government website for the Copyright Office, which is a number of very helpful publications on copyright, uh, and the forms, which are downloadable uh, and can be submitted online. Uh, that website is uh, www.copyright, C-O-P-Y-R-I-G-H-T.gov. So once again, that's the U.S. Copyright Office. The Federal uh, Patent and Trademark Office is www.uspto, as in patent, trademark office, pto.gov. So those are government websites from the U.S. government uh, you can do some preliminary searching on the uh, Patent and Trademark Office, so if you want to embark on checking out whether there's anyone using uh, your desired mark uh, as a competitive mark, uh, if there's any competitors out there, I should say, or if they've registered the mark or they've got a pending application, uh, that's a good source to check, and it's free. So uh, that's the beauty of doing that. I, I don't recommend people always do things themselves, but, you know, the fact is it's not going to cost you anything. It's certainly good to be well-educated, so when you do bring in your legal counsel, you've at least got some knowledge of the topic. You've done a little bit of homework. Uh, not to say you're going to short-circuit uh, the attorney redoing or doing things a different way if they felt they needed to, but I think a well-informed uh, business uh, manager is able to then better deal with the professionals they, they call upon to, to assist them further. Thank you, Nancy. Do you have anything else you want to add? No. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to have spoken with you and uh, your audience. Um, I hope you can see how much I enjoy the practice of law, and I've been privileged to have done it for a number of years. And uh, despite the rough economy, it's uh, a privilege to continue to do it every day. And uh, I enjoy my clients and the work. and. Uh, I hope my enthusiasm carries forth and that everyone is going to get in the IP bandwagon and, and take appropriate steps in this new decade to protect, uh, protect these assets and uh, make the most of them. Thanks, Nancy. Again, let's all thank uh, Illinois Intellectual Property Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme. Um, Nancy, I'm sure you can find her by Googling her name online. And uh, give her a call if you ever have a question. Again, thanks for tuning in today to ALRPRA Incorporated Weekly Radio. ALRPRA's mission is to provide solutions, allowing you, the attorney, to spend more time practicing law and less time managing the business of law. Our mission's underlying values 
are transparency, flexibility, and humility. We're a full-service law practice management agency available nationwide when quality matters to your production and promotion. Tune in next week. Uh, we will have uh, a California attorney uh, talk about um, mediation. Um, so uh, we will be promoting that on Facebook as well. You can always find us uh, facebook.com forward slash ALRPRA if you haven't already. Um, again, we thank you for your time and encourage you to call into the show and or also email us questions as they may arise. Again, thanks for tuning in to ALRPRA Weekly Radio. We wish you the best of times and a good day. Thank you.